Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. It's a story defining important political outcomes. How we understand what shaped political preferences is shifting radically. It's no longer just a case of left and and right. It's globalism versus nationalism. The conflict between the citizen and the state, it often comes down to us versus them. That's the title of Ian Bremmer's new book, Us Versus Them, The Failure of Globalism. And I'm pleased to say that the Eurasia Group founder and president joins us now here in New York. Ian, good morning and congratulations to you. Thank you. Happy to be here. Talk to me about the essence of this book and, and why this is so important to you right now. Uh, it's important because I've never experienced our country so divided. Uh, and when you travel, you go to Europe and increasingly other countries too, you feel it there. And, and that's happening when the global economy is doing better than at any point in over a decade. Uh, which means that we are getting something fundamentally wrong in liberal democracies with our citizens. In fact, the only country among the advanced industrial democracies that you're not experiencing this is Japan, where they have no immigration and where the population is shrinking incredibly rapidly. So per capita, they feel like they're doing great. But it it's not just economics, right? It's much deeper than that. It's about security. Um, it's about identity and culture and society. And, and it basically is saying that the values that the United States has been promoting both at home and abroad since after World War II just don't apply to the average person anymore. And that's why we got Trump and Sanders. And that's why you got Brexit. And it's just picking up momentum. It's not getting fixed. And your point in the book, really, in the conclusion, is that the the president of the United States, President Trump, didn't create us versus them. Us versus them created President Donald Trump. It, it created the the outcome of the UK, the Brexit decision, as well. Are these necessarily negative outcomes, as far as you're concerned? Ian? Uh, I think they are, uh, because uh, Trump's solutions. Uh, are more divisive. No, no one is better at painting us versus them than Donald Trump is. America First is, in a sense, an encapsulation of that. Um, and everything he says about Mexicans, we need to build a wall. It's so, oh, fake news and how yeah. everyone is a winner or a loser. He's doing that and facilitating uh, a deepening of divisions that have already made us no longer understand what it is the United States fundamentally stands for. And that's happening in a world where China has the strongest leader they've had since Mao, and the Chinese know exactly what they stand for, and they're building it long term. This is a, it's a profound tipping point in the geopolitical order. And it really is, um, it forces, I think, us all to look at what kind of society we want to build here in the United States. Perhaps importantly, though, Ian, what has happened and why this message resonates with so many different people across the planet right now is because previous administrations have completely failed to insulate large swathes of society, whether it's in the United States, the UK, and, and across much of Europe as well, insulate them from the negative impact of, of globalization. Previous administrations have quite clearly failed to do that. Yeah, I mean, um, even Obama, who was voted for precisely not as a Democrat, but because he was, he beat Hillary, right? Because he was a first-term senator, first black man. Everyone thought, here's a new guy that we can all have hope for. And yet the swamp 
could not be drained. His ability, I mean, a little things like saying, I'm not going to pay for, accept pay for play for American ambassadors around the world, to big things like building infrastructure, improving education, dealing with gun control in the poorest areas of the country, couldn't get it done. And so a lot of people got disappointed. A lot of those Obama voters went to vote for Trump. Some went to vote for Sanders. They're going to be disillusioned again because in four and eight years, their situation isn't going to be better. So we have more and more people in America saying, should I bother voting at all? More and more young people saying the system is rigged and I'd rather have a military dictatorship um, than have a democracy because this system doesn't work for me. More and more people willing to vote outside of the elites and the establishment, thinking that the business community, the political community, the media, the public intellectuals are all in it for themselves and no one cares about them. And that's obviously happening across Europe, too. This is not just an American phenomenon. So what's the solution? Well, in the near term, precisely because it's not a crisis and the elites aren't experiencing any trouble themselves, especially because the economy is doing so well, it's a combination of candy to keep people happy right now. So let's give everyone a tax break. Let's blow out the budgets, even if the bill's going to come due in a very serious way on the back of the working class in five or 10 years. Let's just throw some cash at them now. And it's build walls. It's divide people more effectively. The long-term solution is you need to change the social contract. The long-term solution, especially with technology facilitating divisions and fake news within our countries, our liberal democracies, and a new industrial revolution or post-industrial revolution going to take displace so many people in terms of automation and artificial intelligence, the long-term is a would, would require something very New Deal-like, would require the kind... I mean, in, there's no magic... Yeah. And the fact that we need serious investments in infrastructure and education and the rest. But Trump Trump did infrastructure week. It was a failure. It became the butt of jokes. While Trump does us versus them every day. One thing the president has done that most people would agree with is, is take on China and try and break the status quo that has shaped the global economy. The Chinese do not abide by the, the global rules. Um, they don't go by the, the mantra of free trade. They have their own rules. They play by their own book. Correct. Do you think the president is going down the right path here, trying to break up what has been a, a country that has really been a leech on the global trading system for, for much of the last decade? I'm conflicted. Uh, I mean, first of all, uh, it is true that if we have a trade war with the Chinese, we both lose, but we win against the Chinese. In other words, they'll get a lot more hurt than we will. They know that. So our ability to push them and get them to actually be flexible with us is significant. And Trump's already had some success there. Yeah. My problem is that if you yeah. want to beat up on the Chinese for deserved reasons in terms of intellectually property stealing, no reciprocity and market openness, all of the rest, you really want want allies. You really want the Europeans with you. You want the Japanese with you. And and Trump just doesn't well, trust multilateralism. He wants to do this right. himself. But right? you know, this is critical, and it goes to work with your colleague Robert Kaplan yep. in his book, The Return of Marco Polo. You've got a great section on, for example, Indonesia, or you could speak about the new Vietnam as well. Are those allies we have the ability to speak to as we look at the South China Sea, the major conduit for oil and goods in the Pacific? Some call it, uh, Kaplan calls it China's uh, Mediterranean. Yeah. Does the president even know where the South China Sea is on the map? They used to be allies that we could speak to more effectively, uh, withdrawing from the Trans-Pacific Partnership, uh, then dangling it for a second and then saying, nah, exactly. doesn't help help. 
Uh, our military presence in the region, of course, is still dominant and beats the Chinese, um, except for, you know, sort of really close to the Chinese shores. That is changing. But, you know, the fact is that every day that we withdraw every day that we say it's all about us baby we're not doing multilateral is another day where the chinese economy is more and more dominant over yeah. these countries and what in the does backyard. it do to indonesia what does our non-engagement do i'm just picking on the i country to indonesia well, i mean it means that they recognize that one belt one road is their marshall they're plan. alone it's their Marshall Plan. Yeah. They're not alone. The Chinese are prepared to throw an enormous amount of money in. There's okay. massive numbers of Chinese expats in Indonesia and the Philippines right. and Australia who are actually becoming the key business people in those countries. Five things you need to know to start your day. We do this with Brian Weezer at Pivotal. Squeezing it, you know, five things, four things, six things. It's with Brian Weezer. That's a good thing. Brought to you by Interactive Brokers, rated number one best online broker 2018, and a top online broker for the eighth consecutive year by Barron's. Visit IBKR.com slash YIB to learn more. Brian Weezer, let's jump into it right now. Is a traditional ad business dead? Disney exits traditional TV. This, that, Martin Sorrell, the gossip of your industry. Is, is Mad Men dead? The TV series? No. Uh, you know, I think advertising is in a constant state of evolution. Um, I think sometimes we, you know, how often have we heard the phrase, the world's changed more in the last five years than the last 50? To which I say to anyone, prove it. Quantify John, it, John, this is Brian's first time on radio. Would you move his mic? It's much right by here. him. Is, are you okay over there? I'm good. Okay. I'm an old radio guy. Are you, are you okay? <clears throat> Brian's been on no, tons of times. Okay. CITR Vancouver. <laughs> I used to be the president of the society there. Did you? I, yeah. There we go. Brian knows what he's doing. Okay. Carry, is, carry is, on, Is the Brian. business dead? Excuse me. No, it is not. Uh, I think that uh, there are a number of challenges in a number of different parts of the industry. And unfortunately, a lot of the numbers are often obscured. The agency space, for example, is obscured by the fact that we can't see what the media agency business is doing separate from the creative agency business. Um, we can't see the degree to which individual clients uh, are experiencing like-for-like -like fee pressure or pu putting like-for-like -like fee pressure on their agencies. Um, when it comes to traditional media, there is weakness, but it is the melting ice cube when it comes to TV advertising, for example. Uh, it's you know a negative 2% number. It's not going away. It remains the least bad alternative for the largest advertisers. But um, you know all this stuff is moving just very gradually. Can we get your thoughts on, on Facebook? One of only two cells on Facebook. 42 buys, two holds, and it's you and Simon Baker over at SockGen um, with two cells on Facebook. What do you see that the bulk of the analyst community aren't getting as far as you're concerned. The single biggest issue for Facebook that most people do not appreciate, and let me clarify, I'm, I'm no perma bear on Facebook. Uh, I had one of the highest price targets on Wall Street at the end of 2016. Um, but certainly there's the mismanagement issues that have come to light over that period of time. Uh, the data privacy issue is merely a symptom. I think mismanagement of the company is a risk, not something we're seeing in the numbers, clearly. The biggest single problem facing Facebook is the limits to growth that are available to them. In other words, the advertising industry has not expanded 
faster than it otherwise would have. Yeah, just but because John Farrow doesn't out. use Facebook. I don't know. I'm off Facebook. I, I, I like, you know, I got a big fine, blah, blah, blah. I never, I never go to it. Never. With all due respect, Ever. though, neither of you nor me, none of us matter. The consumer is the advertiser. It doesn't matter whether or not we're there. It matters whether or not it's the least bad alternative to a digital to an advertiser who has a digital budget, right? The fact that we're not there. When do they change their behavior? That's the money question. When a lot of people reduce their time on the platform substantially, okay. that would be a catalyst for change. But I think the bigger, more pressing issue is that there's only so much that they can increase their spending. And not about cutting. Right. It's only so much that you can increase your spending because the total pie for advertising is relatively fixed. That is the single okay. biggest thing that most Quick. people are missing. Twitter takeout, did they finally get taken out? Stocks better? Income statements better? Is this now the time they go? I mean, it can always be, it's always a possibility. Right. Um, certainly, I, I think risks are still to the downside uh, for the stock. I think there's a lot of positive uh, things to read through from yesterday's right. numbers. But not right okay. away. I just got an email from a listener. Kavya, we love that Kavya is listening uh, this morning. She said, well, you could have taken me to work. I go, but you're not my daughter. So so the youngest one emails in and goes, you didn't let me come to work because Rania Felliu is styling so really? major. Is it? Is it? Bring your child to work. It's bring, like, excuse me. You bring your issue. If you're why royal, did, why didn't like you bring, a royal baby why didn't is you an bring issue. The dog to work. We should have brought the dog to work. Can, can you, I just can say? Can we get Vet Bill to come in later? Can we get Vet Bill in we like could. the next hour in the Bloomberg Radio Can I studio? just say, Ryan Felio is styling today at work with her dad. <laughs> this is Bloomberg. <laughs> Wonderful to have Alberto Gala with us with wonderful wisdom on fixed income dynamics and the interdependencies of what we see, not only in Europe, but in general um, as well. Alberto Gallo, I, I guess we have caution, but we have an unchanged confidence. How can we have it both ways? Uh, good morning from London. I, I think what Draghi is essentially saying is that a bit like us, they have no idea why the data has been slowing in the first quarter. <laughs> So it could That's be the weather. That's why we love it having Jan Alberto. Yeah, it could be the weather. It could be Easter. It could be that a lot of people got sick because the weather was too cold, uh, or it could be lower demand. Mm -hmm. Now, um, if the, if this was just a soft patch, we would have had some signs of mean reversion, uh, and we're not getting that. Uh, and I suspect that given the trade conflicts, um, the uh, you know slower. Uh, you know, the, the, the tougher negotiations with Asia and, and uh, some other economies in the world that are also slowing, you know, this may be something a bit more structural than just a soft patch. Uh, and the question is, uh, has the ECB missed the train on raising rates? Do they have enough time to normalize rates in the next uh, 24 months before Mr. Draghi leaves? I think they won't be able to do a lot. Uh, I think they'll barely manage to normalize the deposit rate to zero. I mean, I look, Alberto, at the dynamics here. The market speaks. You are so good at the interdependencies of the European markets. What is the market telling you when you take the fixed income market? When you fold in CDS, is the confidence there in the markets on European growth? Europe is growing, but um, the market in fixed income is looking for places to hide. Um, we know that data in the U.S. is strong. We saw that jobless claims are 
you know, uh, one of the lowest numbers of the past few years. Uh, it's the lowest since 1969, mm-hmm. I, I think, just come, came out a bit uh, earlier. Um, so the, UK, the UK, U.S. economy is doing well. The Fed is going to continue to hike. And fixed income investors are looking for um, right. safe havens or places to hide. And Europe is one of them. So what happens is if growth in, in Europe is softening, you know, people are buying um, bonds, but also BTPs, Portuguese bonds, Spanish bonds. And, you know, I think until the ECB remains quiet, and I think they, they're going to remain quiet well, for a bit longer. Okay, they're going to remain quiet. I get all this. And whether, you know, the, the banks are all the same, Alberto. They're, bef- they're, they're be- betwixt by inflation or non-inflation, and they're all struggling with their crystal ball and what they're going to do with it. The, the money question is, what will be the exogenous shock that changes this measured pace of a measured belief. I mean, is that what we're waiting for? Is some exogenous shock like oil? We could have a positive shock to inflation. I agree. There could be, you know, rising oil and and you know supply constraints, um, yeah. or the U.S. economy accelerating. However, I'm starting to worry about negative shocks too. I I know such that, as you know you, you say I'm worried more about the negative side, but uh, you know geopolitical <clears throat> risk. If you have a too high spike in oil, that can also constrain growth. If you have a supply shock with oil spiking to 80 plus, so geopolitical tensions, Iran, Turkey, yeah. Russia, um, and also um, the global imbalances. You know we focus a lot on growth on the on the changes in growth on on, on unemployment changes, but if you look at the stock of debt um, in the U.S., the stock of consumer debt in the U.K., of the stock of sovereign debt in Europe, in Italy. So the, the stock variables uh, are still very bad. Yeah. What we have to think about, if something goes wrong, like in February, you don't have uh, a lot of room, a lot of leeway. You know, recoveries don't die of old age, like Miss um, Yellen used to say, but if you're 99 years old yeah. and someone pushes you over, you, you, know, you, well, you just have a little bit of, 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 of room. Dollar weakness and some euro strength up through 122.07. Pim near the Peninsula Hotel emails in. Yeah, well, I oh, just, no, Alberto, I just want to understand. You have a great question. Well, I just don't understand. Why would you buy a 10 year Spanish bond at 121 when you can buy a U.S. 10 year at un- just under 3% and you have a euro at 121? I mean, come on. I how does that it. make any okay. sense? I, I, if, you, if you convert euros to dollars, right. you, you know that you know, the dollar yields roughly 3%, right? And, and euro yields zero. But if you buy a European right. uh, sovereign bond, you, you convert it to dollars, you get that 3% on top of the yield that the European bond gives you. So, for example, BDP's 10-year now are at 1.74. Uh, if you buy it and then hedge uh, the euro into dollars, you're getting close to 5%. Okay. there's so a, that's, there, that's attractive. Yeah, there's a pro mathematics. Uh, Alberto Pimmett, a really good observation, which I believe Mr. Draghi is Italian. Does he have any kind of domestic constituency where he would run for prime minister in Italy? So there's been this uh, discussion. I, I don't think he would like to go back um, at the moment, given the um, you know right. political confusion. I do think that he would be a great candidate for European, you know, for for a European role, uh, you know, and, and I hope uh, as a European citizen that he uh, continues um, in a European yeah. institution, maybe on the fiscal side, like, you know, finance minister okay. or, or a European Commission president. Alberto Gallo, thank you so much today as we see the euro surge here coming off of Draghi comments. Mr. Gallo is with Algebras, and we greatly appreciate his interest.
Tom, do you know why you're able to buy products, let's say, that are made in China and have them shipped to the United States and why they're so cost-effective for those companies? has to do with postal rates. has to do with the cost of actually making that shipment happen. Here to tell us about those kinds of details is Cheryl Bolam. He is, uh, Cheryl is Bloomberg's own government White House uh, reporter focusing on trade. And Cheryl, thanks very much for being with us. I, tell Tom exactly sort of what this all has to do with the U.S. Postal Service and the cost of uh, delivering uh, shipments both domestically and internationally. That's right. This is this is not a new issue, but it's certainly one that has come up um, very suddenly, and especially for uh, U.S. manufacturers. Um, there's been increased focus on the U.S. Postal Service. The president has been tweeting about it, uh, ordered a reform. Um, but really, what uh, what manufacturers, U.S. manufacturers, have discovered is that, especially with the rise of e-commerce and the ability of, of consumers to just go online, order whatever toy, whatever product they want, um, that uh, these a lot of these products are being shipped from China for free. And, Why is and, that? How, explain explain <laughs> the detail. What happens? So, <laughs> Tom King goes online. He wants another bow tie, and it turns out that it's uh, going to be shipped from Shanghai. Why is it less expensive to get it from Shanghai than it is from, uh, let's say, Chapel Hill? From across the street. That's right. Um, and so this goes back uh, to um, a very, very old organization called the Universal um, Postal Union, uh, which is headquartered in Switzerland, and it's part of the United Nations now. Uh, it's a, a UN group, and they get together every four years, and they set postal rates for the delivery of, of foreign mail. And so uh, what happens is, is China or any other country ships their product um, to a U.S. border, and then the U.S. Postal Service then uh, takes that and delivers it to the to the final destination. They are paid. The U.S. Postal Service is paid a fee. It's called a terminal due. Uh, the terminal due system is set um, by this uh, Universal Postal Union, and. Basically, different countries are put into different categories, really based on how developed they are, China being one of the countries that is considered developing, and they get a very, very low rate. So how much does it cost to ship, the, to ship the bow tie from China versus <laughs> shipping it from across the street? Well, there, there are a couple factors in play here. Uh, there's concern by manufacturers that China itself, China Post, is subsidizing the, uh, the, the first leg, getting it from China to the United States. Um, but really, one, one of the manufacturers I talked to said that uh, for him, he's based in, in New Jersey, and for him to ship a package to California would cost about $18, whereas his Chinese counterpart uh, would pay about $3 and 70 cents uh, for that same package. So okay, so really 18, 18 bucks versus uh, under four bucks. That's right. That's, that's his, been his experience. Who, and these pays, rates fluctuate. Who pays to get the package across the Pacific Ocean? That would be the, the foreign post, and so uh, the, okay. in this case, the China post. Um, there's concern that the Chinese are subsidizing. That's the heart um, of the matter. I mean, I mean, to explain this, Cheryl, in the time we've got left, and this is critical, it's just a classic linear sequence problem. The bottom line is possibly 
the Chinese postal system is subsidized by the government. So the transfer from Shanghai to Long Beach is dirt cheap, right? That's, that's correct. And then when we pick it up at Long Beach or Irvine or wherever, it's essentially an unsubsidized postal event in the United States of America. That's right. The U.S. Postal Service is, is losing a lot of money. In 30 seconds, what do we do about this? Because we're not going to tell the Chinese what to do. No, we can't. We, we have no control over the Chinese. Um, but there is legislation that has been introduced um, in the House by uh, Representative Kenny Marchand and in the Senate by Senator Bill Cassidy. To do what? To have the State Department eliminate that subsidy and bring up the rates uh, for, for the internal delivery within the United States at the same rates that the U.S. Postal Service charges domestic um, U.S. users, mailers. So there might be some remedy to this. It, there might be some remedy. It's going to take an international agreement, though, and it involves the um, Secretary of State that negotiates on uh, behalf me, of the United but, States. But, you know, we don't have time for this. At the Universal show, Postal Union. The bottom line is the foreign, the foreign postal services are totally subsidized. Right. There's I mean, a logistic subsidy that goes there's on. There's not this delusion of profitability that no. you have in the United States. No. Market Cheryl, share. that was fabulous. Thank you, Cheryl Boland. Greatly appreciate it with Bloomberg Government today. With us now, James Albertine. Thrilled to have him with us with Consumer Edge. And this is on the auto business, but we wanted to go further, as we're always striving to do at Bloomberg Surveillance. As you know, one of the great things in America is take your daughter, take your sons, and even worse, Pim, take your twins to work Oh, take your twins. We have some twins. Mom is like, yeah. Free day. Because free day. Dad brought the twins in. McDonough and Liam Kuntz with us right now. You're out of Rumson, New Jersey, and your parents have an SUV, right? Big fancy car with lots of coffee cup holders in them. What do you put in the coffee cup holders in an SUV? What do you put in there, Liam? Hot chocolate. Hot chocolate would be very good. What, you got any others you put in? Water. Water? Do you, do you like the water? Is it like mom pours a cup of water, or is it like fits the bottle waters perfectly? Um, probably mom pours like the water. Okay, one question before we go to Mr. Albertine. Penguins Capitals. Penguins look good, right? Yeah. Yeah, they do. But the Capitals, you know, they're pretty good. They're my second favorite team. But oh, so it's tough for you. This yes. series is gonna be tough. Okay. To the Kunz brothers, thank you so much for coming in and giving us auto perspective here. And James, that goes to the lead of your note, which is cars are dead. I don't buy it. Why are why are cars dead? Is it because of hot chocolate and the coffee cup holders? Well, first, thanks for having me, and thank you because the Capitals are my favorite team. Oh, so we're killing it here, that. Penguins. So this Capitals. is fantastic. For and our global, let me kids. explain this though for our global yeah. audience yeah. and for Abby Joseph Cohen <laughs> at Goldman Sachs, the Penguins always win. Continue. Ah. Understood. And and I've got three children, and so what I find in the cup holders of their car seats is always pretty interesting. But I think that you say cars are dead. Well, you just asked uh, our, our friend there, and he mentioned an SUV. So, you know, I think that points to exactly the uh, – the crux of the story here, segments um, are shifting. Uh, you can get the same fuel economy in a crossover utility vehicle now that you can uh, in a midsize sedan. And I think consumers are waking to that fact that for a similar price and similar fuel economy, the trade-offs are not the same um, 
um, as they had been prior cycles. So I, I think that you know Ford pulling back into I believe they said two uh, car segments, um, looking into the future specialty cars like the Mustang, and and I think very good selling market share for them in the Focus. Um, you know that's that's a smart thing to do. GM doing some of the same. So I like the domestic OEMs because their mix uh, is generally more levered to CUVs, SUVs, and trucks. That's where the margin is. That's where consumers are going, mm-hmm. and that's where they already are. James, is that where the consumer is now? How does anybody know where the consumer is going to be in two to three years? Uh, that's a very difficult question. I agree. But I, I think, look, at the end of the day, we're monthly payment driven, uh, uh, at least in the United States. And I think as long as credit availability remains um, uh, widely available across right. the spectrum and uh, leasing and residuals hold up, um, I think you could, ju- you know, these, these OEMs are going to push more utility vehicles and, uh, and consumers will justify them because the payments won't get out okay. of reach. So I think those two things together kind of answer your question. Where's your research on safety? What I see time sure. and time again is the guys go in the shop, and even if they don't mention it in the store, they'll say, I want more weight to the car to protect the family. Isn't that still number one for so many people? Oh, absolutely. I think safety ratings are critical. And I think if you want to juxtapose that with recalls, it's a very interesting debate right now. We've seen, you know, record numbers of vehicle recalls out there. On the one hand, you might say that that's OEMs that are much more focused on continuing to test the structure of their vehicles, the safety of their vehicles, even after they've sold it. They're kind of buying into the long-term safety. You know, on the other hand, you could point to maybe there's, you know, bigger quality concerns. Maybe they're pushing volume too quickly. I think you know the reality is we're going to get a lot more sensors, a lot more airbags, a lot more equipment on vehicles uh, in the next kind of five to ten year period as we're transitioning into more of, if you will, an autonomous world. Now I don't necessarily think we're going to go fully AV, um, but you know I do think um, that's where a lot of the strategy is focused. It's this sort of semi-autonomous functions. So safety is first and foremost on the minds of OEMs, and I think that's exactly right. Mm-hmm. I think that's the great way to grab market share because consumers are. Uh, obviously focused on that as well. James, are there any estimates for how much a fully automated vehicle is going to cost? Nothing I would say that's credible at this point in terms of cost to the consumer. I mean, we would say that some of these test vehicles are well into the hundreds of thousands of dollars, you know, cost to the OEMs, but it's all about scale. And I think to get, you know, to answer your question, we'd have to figure out, okay, you know, how how is this uh, technology going to ramp over time and how is it going to um, start to penetrate sort of the the, the commercial market? Um, And so that, you know, we're going to hear more of that uh, in, in a few minutes here from GM in terms of the rollout of the cruise automation. AVs in uh, lower Manhattan later this year and into next yeah. year. And that's going to drive the answer to your question more than anything else. We got to get you back on. I really want to talk about the Ford Motor Company, the Ford Motor Company sure. after uh, Mullally and some of the challenges there. Jamie Alberton, thank you so much. Greatly appreciate it. Uh, Consumer Edge Research, uh, this one. Really, really appreciate that. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.